We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. On today's episode of Green with Envy, we sit down with Indiana Pacers super blogger Caitlin Cooper of Basketball. She wrote to break down everything you need to know about Monday's in-season tournament matchup. That and more next on Green with Envy. What's good, everybody? Greg Manakis checking in here, joined as always, and hopefully by that man, Adam Taylor, who is experiencing some internet issues. Uh, so you might hear him, you might not, we'll see. Uh, but today we have basketball blogging royalty in the house. Caitlin Cooper of Basketball, she wrote, is here. Uh, Caitlin, thank you so much for being here with us today. Thanks for having me on. And also that very cool intro video made me feel very fancy and special. So <laughs> shout out for that. That That's a new addition. Um, our host, Will, I think he went on like Fiverr or something like that and just reached out to someone to make some state of the art uh, industry standard. I'll use that term again. Industry standard intro for the pod. Um, but Caitlin, before I mess this up on the pod, I do want to mention that when I Google search your name, and I type in Caitlin, and then I type in the letter C, the two names that pop up are Caitlin Cooper and Caitlin Clark. <laughs> yes, that happens so, a lot. Yeah, so I, there, I was talking to Adam earlier, and like three different times I referred to you as Caitlin Clark, and I was like, I'm going to mess that up so many times today, so I'm just going to mention it right off the top. I know I'm talking to Caitlin Cooper. Uh, maybe one day we'll talk to Caitlin Clark, but um, just, wanted, just wanted to throw that out there. Oh, yeah, there's there's fans in Indiana who are really clamoring for the fever to be able to draft Caitlin Clark. And there was a person who messed that up there and said, asked one of the fever writers, do you think that Caitlin Cooper will change the fortunes of the Indiana fever? <laughs> Our names get switched around a lot. So I understand. OK, OK, good. I don't feel so bad now. Um, So you're you're Indiana born and bred, right? Yes, I've lived here my whole life. So. Okay. I got a buddy. Um, he actually listens to the pod when we were first starting the pod, like five years ago, whatever it was. Now I mentioned that I was going to start a Boston Celtics podcast and he was like, Oh, like there aren't enough Boston Celtics podcasts out there already. Um, but he's from Indiana and he went to Pike high school. Are you familiar with Pike high school by any chance? That is where Pacer legend Jeff Teague is currently the coach and where Jeff Teague graduated from. I'm familiar. I know. 
Yeah, I know. He he actually went to high school. I think he was probably two years ahead of Jeff Teague, but he always talks about, and I have another buddy that grew up in Indiana, they're IU uh, graduates as well, uh, but they always talk about the the level of high school basketball that is Indiana hoops. So before we start talking about Celtics and Pacers, do you have any good stories? I know your dad was a coach, right? Do you have any good stories of any great players that you saw going gym to gym as a kid? Yeah, I mean, I don't want to reveal too much, but I will say that one of the players he coached played on the same AAU team as George Hill. So then when George Hill later on became, that was really awesome to have been able to see in AAU gyms grassroots wise here in Indiana alongside a player that had been playing in our uh, school system and in the district where I grew up. So that that's probably the top player that I ever saw in my area because there weren't a lot of, you know, NBA caliber ones right in the sectional where my dad was coaching. But that was a further connection was just getting to see George Hill. So. Oh, cool. That's really cool. Um, okay. Well, we're, we're, we're here to talk about the Celtics and the Pacers. Um, and those of you that are tuning in on YouTube, you can see Caitlin right here, but I will also link her work in the description. She has a great blog um, on Patreon, right? Called Basketball She Wrote. Um, I know that you did a video breakdown, so I'm just going to plug that real quick for you, video breakdown. Um, I haven't had a chance to watch that yet, but I will definitely be uh, tuning in to watch that. Um, now Adam is not here, everybody. He is dealing with some internet issues. I encouraged him to pop back in, but he gets self-conscious when his internet's not working. He might pop in, he might not. Um, so we're going to just kind of pass the rock between me and Caitlin for our new segment that we have called passing the rock. Caitlin, um, excuse this, uh, video clip real quick. You guys ready? It's the plan, Bobby. We're winging it, Jerry. Yeah. Kayla, do you know do you know which movie that clip is from? I do not. I have not seen that. That's amazing. Though that's from this movie called Four Brothers, uh, starring Mark Wahlberg and Andre 3000 and Tyrese. So definitely go check that out. But um, that that's just the funniest clip to me in the world. Um, I'm actually from Dorchester, so I grew up in the same neighborhood that Mark Wahlberg grew up in. So we we tend to reference the Wahlbergs from time to time. All right. So um, for the listeners, remember, we're just going to go around kind of passing the rock back and forth, talking about something that's piquing our interest. So Caitlin, we'll start with you. Um, it can be a question that you have for me or just something that you're looking forward to in the Celtics Pacers matchup. I think that my number one question that I will pass the rock to is who on the Boston Celtics do you think will guard Miles Turner? Because I think this has a lot of far reaching implications. That's a great question. That's something that I was thinking about and something I I was going to ask you about. So the Celtics do a lot of kind of like pre-switching. So Mm -hmm. they tend to negate other teams, pick and roll coverages. um, I mean, pick and roll offense by putting Drew Holiday on a big man. Right. So that um, we can just switch that action right, right off the jump. We don't know if Porzingis is playing at this point. So um, if Porzingis is out there, I would kind of imagine he's going to get the early call. We'll live with with Halliburton destroying us, I'm sure, if we're in that deep drop coverage. But I would imagine um, if Turner is kind of initiating things with that high step-up screen, like at the half-court level, which it seems like the Pacers like going with, Halliburton's going to get downhill all the time. So... Missoula has not been shy about putting Holiday on other teams' big men to negate the pick and roll. Um, do you think, was that something that you were kind of thinking about? Is Holiday going to be the guy? 
Yeah, I mean, I think that's why Kristaps Porzingis' health as well as Tyrese's health, because he didn't play last night due to an illness. We'll see. I'm assuming that both of them will probably go, although I do know that Porzingis hasn't practiced yet, correct, since the calf right. injury. Yeah. That that makes it a lot more critical because if you can use Porzingis as a weak side rim protector, I think that this could be fairly disruptive to the Pacers. This is kind of the matchup to watch for me because I had seen Drew guarding Joel Embiid, Drew guarding Jakob Pertl, Drew guarding Carl Anthony Towns, even in minutes when Al Horford and Porzingis have both been out on the floor for Minnesota where he's doing some of that. And I think that those cross matches, the value of it is, is that you're obviously not going to be doing a lot of the stuff up top with a big, like you're not going to be doing a lot of delay action or side to side when Drew Holiday's up there hounding a big mm-hmm. as a ball handler. So that really routes a lot to the post. And for the Pacers, the Turner Halliburton pick and roll combination is the number three pick and roll combination in the NBA in terms of efficiency. And Tyrese is a little less efficient as stupendous as he has been to start the season against switches than he is against drop, as you would expect, because he's shooting like 43% on seven pull up threes per game. <laughs> so if you can put Drew on miles and automatically switch that, I could see that having somewhat of a limiting effect. And then maybe you're just living with miles Turner in the post, mm-hmm. especially because like the other thing that I like that Boston is able to do with that is, you know, typically a big is guarding a big. And when you have to come double, it's a guard that comes in doubles. When yeah. Drew Holiday is the primary assignment, a lot of times it's Kristaps Porzingis coming to double. And now you're having to pass over a nine foot five standing reach. That's a hang time pass. You have time to recover out out of that even if you do want to go double miles turner even though i imagine that's probably what they might be willing to live with even though he's been a little bit better against switches so i feel like navigating those cross matches could be for the pacers because they're not going to have as many options to cross match as the celtics will Mm -hmm. because of what their starting lineup is so that's kind of like the top thing that i'm keeping an eye on so if the if, say the Celtics do put Holiday on Turner, right? Obviously you can post Turner, but I think the Celtics, as you said, would kind of welcome that. Um, what, who is the next likely screener in the starting lineup for for the Pacers? If they're not, if they're if they don't want to bring Drew up into the action, who do you think they'd go to? So this has happened. To, there's only a few teams who have done a lot of cross matching against the Pacers. The Raptors had to because Pirtle couldn't handle being in and drop against Tyrese Halliburton. So they put Pirtle on Obi Toppin. Right. So they put Pirtle on Obi Toppin and they put and then they started rolling Obi Toppin in a response to that, which Toppin hasn't scored many points out of the role this year, but he does have a certain degree of gravity because of what his vertical pop is. And he did better against uh, Jakob in that match trip to the point where eventually Pirtle started guarding Bruce Brown and then they did the same thing like this is kind of part of the puzzle with the Pacers is they use a lot of different screeners I would say Mm. just in their normal offense if they're not having to navigate around matchups typically the second most used screener is Buddy Heald because they really like using him as a ghost screener just to run Mm -hmm. and slip out into space but the other team that did this the most recently which is where I thought the Celtics hey if they watch that film they might catch on to this your old friend Malcolm Brogdon but the Trailblazers (laughs) Brogdon was assigned from the beginning of that game to guard Miles Turner. And they were having to switch those pick and rolls. And then they were having Aiton sag really far off of Obi Toppin into the paint. And that that's just what they were willing to live with, which last night the Heat were also doing some of that out of blitzes and Obi made four threes. So there's a chance he gets hot. But overall, the percentages suggest that if I was a team and I was scheming against the Pacers, I would be prioritizing getting and limiting Tyrese and Miles in the pick and roll more. And if I have to live with what Obi does as a roller, or I have to do live with what Obi does in spot up situations, I'd be more okay with that. 
So how have the the Pacers been handling when teams hard trap Halliburton, right? Because it, it seems like if you're going to let Halliburton get into space, he's just going to manipulate defenses however he wants. And that's one of the things that when we talk about Celtics ball handlers, and I don't know how much film study you've done on the Celtics, they don't have a lot of manipulators of defense. They have guys that can read the defense and, and make some passes. Like Tatum's getting a little bit better at it, though he's been turnover prone um, lately. But one thing I like about hard trapping is that it, it doesn't really allow you as much to manipulate the defense, right, if you're Halliburton. So have teams been going to that hard trap, and how have the Pacers been handling it? Yeah, I mean, I think that's probably the best of several bad answers. Um, the best thing that you can do against Tyrese, and I know that the Celtics do this some with Derek White and Drew Holiday, is applying the full-court pressure and the three-quarter court pressure. And if you can mm-hmm. deny him from even getting the ball in the first place and funnel that to – Bruce Brown or even Buddy Heald to have to bring the ball up the floor all the better. And then once Tyrese gets it, teams will trap him. So the teams that have done that the most is Atlanta in the in-season tournament game. Tyrese made seven threes in the third quarter. By the fourth quarter, they were three-quarter court trapping him and forcing somebody else to have to score. As it turned out, Buddy Heald was very hot in that game and went five of five during crunch time and was you know running around into open spots and just bombing away. This, though, happened again this week against the Heat where Tyrese scored a career high of 44 points and they went to trapping him very heavily in the fourth quarter. And Buddy on this particular occasion was not making those same shots. He finished like two of 12 from three. So this is kind of a problem for the Pacers. They don't have a lot of secondary creators. Andrew Nemhard can do some of that and has a pretty good feel out of the pick and roll, but he fouled out against the Heat. So he wasn't mm-hmm. really available to be doing that. And then they just, they don't have other guys who are like what you're going to say are going to actually manipulate defenses and shift things or create in isolation. So There's times where another opponent, the Orlando Magic, really kind of schemed Tyrese out with Jalen Suggs' pressure, and then they have a lot more trouble getting to the next action. So that's that's been a recurring theme in the in the ways to guard Tyrese. Yeah, and the Celtics don't necessarily go to too many like three quarter court traps. They do like going to that two two one full court press that I'm sure you've seen them seen them go to. Um, but yeah, with with Halliburton, you know, going back to your original question in terms of who's going to guard Turner, um, if if I had to bet, I think that they would start with Porzingis with a very quick um, change to Holiday to kind of take that away. But if Porzingis doesn't play, they're, they're going to trust Al Horford uh, you know, at the beginning to, to kind of funnel him, kind of keep him towards the sideline. I'm sure they'll try and, and not allow him to get towards the middle of the floor as much as they can. Um, but you, know, you mentioned a guy, Andrew Nemhard, and I just want to kind of let you know that I have a huge man crush on Andrew Nemhard's game. I think yeah. that you know, of all the guys on the Pacers bench, he's one of those guys that I was in the offseason. Like, is there any way the Celtics can figure out a way to get Nemhard? Like, I didn't know what his value was around the league. Um, but what have you seen out of Nemhard? I know that Halliburton missed the last game. I looked, I just, I didn't get a chance to watch the second heat game. I did watch the first one. Um, it didn't seem like Nemhard had too great of a game. But what have you seen development wise out of Nemhard this year? So, Nemhard. I don't think he's a guy that you can't really look at the box score and really see his impact, which is a cliche. But even mm-hmm. like last night, TJ McConnell ended up finishing the game because he was nine of 10 from the field. And for whatever reason, the heat, because Bam was out, Kevin Love was defending at the five and they were having to do a lot of blitzing because he's not a rim protector. So TJ was even seeing blitzes at the logo, which is like absurd <laughs> to see. So they ended up leaning a little bit more on TJ. But I mean, in that game, Andrew Nemhart has 15 potential assists. He, you can watch him defensively and there are possessions where he might guard four players on the same possession 
and he's capable of defending up and down a lineup. I really like his ability to switch onto a big front the post, maybe deflect that pass out of the post, or if there is penetration, he can then peel off of the post, guard the ball, and give an indicator for that player to then go recover the post. This makes a lot of smart reads, and that's probably part of the problem for me because I tend to over-index on guys who have really good feel as passers and have really good feel as defenders, which he qualifies as both. So in the prior game against the Celtics, I'm sure fans probably remember that Pacer fans probably don't want to remember, but in what was a historic loss and Tyrese did not play, <laughs> Andrew Nemhard was the starter. And that was probably one of the worst games that he's played this season or even mm-hmm. for the Pacers in a lead guard role because they were he was seeing a little bit more of that pressure. And then he wasn't looking to involve, he was looking for his own offense a little bit more than he typically does. So he finished that game with only three potential assists, which isn't what you want to see from him. But he's very good at wiggling into the middle of the floor. He can play at more than one speed. I really enjoy his ability to play slow, which always, you know, doesn't always completely mesh with how fast that this team likes to play and get out in transition and get into sets very quickly in the half court. But he does some manipulation like what you were just talking about, the Celtics ball handlers. Andrew's capable of doing that. He has similar, you know, eye manipulation to Tyrese out of a stack pick and roll where he can send a defender to the roller or send a defender to the guy going out to the stack screen and still find another pass within that. So I still think there's a lot to like about Andrew. His shot, I don't think, has fallen to the degree that they want it to. They made some tweaks. I don't know that it's necessarily related to that, but that's going to have to turn around for him to take the next step. But I like a lot that that there is for Andrew as a backup guard for the Pacers. The TJ McConnell thing makes it a bit tricky, as did signing Bruce Brown, because last year he went from being a second-round pick to a key starter. And now, Mm -hmm. despite the fact that he did take steps forward and had a really strong summer league, his role has been a little bit more inconsistent from night to night on what he's going to be doing and whether he's going to be the primary ball handler for the bench, whether he comes in early and it's a combo guard next to Tyrese, or like last night, whether he's even finishing the game. So... Yeah, what has the the Pacers' closing lineup been? Has it been consistent, or are they kind of shuffling the deck based on matchups? We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. 
Oh no, it changes a lot. So like in the in-season tournament game, Miles Turner did not play in the fourth quarter because they had to go to so much trapping against Trey Young in what was virtually mm-hmm. an all-star game with both teams scoring in the 150s. So did they go they to closed- Jackson? They did a lot of trapping with Isaiah Jackson, and then he had played like 15 consecutive minutes, which conditioning-wise, when he's the third-string center, they eventually ended up having to pull him, and it it ended up being technically, it's nominally Obi Toppin at the five, like what mm. they were doing in last night's game, but really, it's Aaron Neesmith at the five. Okay. He's the person that's defending the centers and those and those smaller lineups, but I think sometimes it has to do with, like, are they are they playing to maintain a lead, or are they playing because they need to get back in a game? So, like, against the Pistons, they were nursing like a two or three point lead and they went heavily defense for most of that quarter with Bruce Brown, Andrew Nemhard, Aaron Neesmith, Miles Turner. And I'm trying to think of the first, Benedict Matherin. Ben, Ben's not necessarily a strong defender, but the other four people. And then there'll be other games where maybe it's Tyrese, Buddy Heald. Aaron Neesmith is typically the one that you see out there at the four. Obi doesn't often get the nod in closing lineups unless it's very matchup specific. Normally it will be Aaron at the four and they tend to lean back on Buddy Heald more at the two than they do with Ben. Mm. And why do you think Obi gets shelved in, in crunch time? Is it like a specific um, lapse in his you know, ability to read defensive coverages? What What is it with Obi? They don't have as much defensive versatility if Obi's out there at the four. Obi had a pretty strong performance in the second game against the Heat, or strong by comparison to his own standard, and that he wasn't jumping on a lot of pump fakes against Jimmy Butler and stayed home there and was able to get Yeah, he got the stops. primary matchup on Butler in the first game. Yeah, yeah, this, he did a better job in the second game than he did in the first one. And But for the most part, like he didn't do a lot of switching with the Knicks. He's being asked to do a lot more switching at the four spot this year. And like if you have Aaron Neesmith out there, what I just mentioned with him defending at the five, there's games where they will cross-match him under five so that you can play Miles Turner in the weak side roamer spot. Then they can okay. switch ball screens. If he's out there, you're a lot more able to do that than what you'd be able to do with OB. And I think they just trust Aaron on more primary assignments than what they would normally do with Obi Toppin, although I think that they're pretty pleased with what he did overall in the game against Miami here. And then just his shooting too. Aaron's shooting like 4% almost on catch and shoot threes right now. And Obi's been hovering around the low 30s. So you kind of get better spacing and a little bit more defensive versatility when Aaron's out there. So the theoretical shooting that uh, that was Aaron Neesmith coming in into the league and on the Celtics, it's actually translated into buckets this year. It's been a strong start for him this season. What's interesting is he came into the season with them having acquired Obi Toppin and then them also grabbing Jarris Walker in the draft. And he had said at media day that he expected to be playing more at the three, which meant he was going to be playing more above the break and that he needed to work on putting the ball on the floor and also being able to be used as a ghost screener. And some of those returns showed up pretty early in preseason. And as it turned out, Jarris doesn't really look ready to play and Aaron kind of popped off. So mm-hmm. he's back playing the backup four spot again or, or being shoehorned into being the four, but he still used those skills and implemented them to be a lot better at attacking close outside of the corner. And yeah, the spot up shot where it was with Boston, where he was a hop step shooter and like if he didn't get that hop step in his shot could release wasn't exactly where you wanted it to be he seemed mm-hmm. to even a lot of that out at least to start the year i don't think he's going to shoot 45 percent the entire season on catch and shoot threes but he's been one of their more reliable options and when they put him back into the starting lineup against atlanta rick carlisle had indicated that that was the reason why that he had started buddy and aaron because of the spacing i suspect that part of the reason was because the atlanta hawks run so many slip screens power forward point Mm -hmm. guard slip screens for trey young and that they just felt more comfortable with aaron even though they ended up giving up a ton of points anyways but yeah that's funny so with neesmith um first of all has the crash nickname kind of gone with him to indiana because we called him crash neesmith (laughs) 
there's reasons to say that, right? Like, I, I don't think it's carried over as much. I think his defense has been a little bit more under control than what you guys had probably seen, even though I know that was kind of a loving nickname for him. But oh, I mean, big... well, I watched, I watched the uh, the Heat game, and he, I, he, for a five minute stretch, I think he hit the floor four times, and he almost injured three players. <laughs> yeah. That is very true. And he's still picking up a lot of fouls. The foul rate, I think, like he has strong finishes on defensive possessions and then he can't help himself with the foul at the end. And some of that goes back to the Pacers defensive scheme. They're a foul machine in general, which maybe that helps Boston, who doesn't get to the free throw line very much. And I'm sure you'd probably like them to compensate some of their ways of settling for threes at times. It's getting to the line a little bit more. The Pacers do so much with two-on-two pick-and-roll coverages and not wanting to involve tertiary defenders that they get left on islands, and then a lot of times they they end up doing a lot of fouling. So Aaron is a yeah. part of that. Okay, yeah. So I read your um, your article on basketball she wrote about the slice actions that teams mm-hmm. are running against the Pacers. Very well done stuff. Um, and I, I know that you had one clip from the Celtics' first game against there where we got Tatum on that slice screen um, onto McConnell. He had him on the left block and was able to to draw a foul. I think he hit the shot. I think it was an M1 opportunity. Um, but with the Pacers, and, you know, they're, they have a historically great offense what should Celtics fans and um, yeah, yeah. What should we be looking for in the game for the Celtics to be able to take advantage of the Pacers besides those slice screens? Cause in the first game I went back and I watched the first half. I know Halliburton wasn't playing, but it did seem like a lot of the Celtics success was just um, abnormally hot shooting. Yeah. And that, that's, that's the thing, right? Because the pace, threes that's the one thing they do well on defense their scheme is very much geared around limiting three-point attempts and in that game they didn't even do that so they gave up Mm -hmm. the season high of 30 attempts and a season high of 20 makes or 35 attempts and 20 makes so some of that was them just not adhering to their scheme like for instance like Andrew Nemhard's guarding Peyton Pritchard Peyton Pritchard drives him Andrew still stays in front and for some reason Isaiah Jackson's like smashing down from Jason Tatum at the top of the key and then Buddy Heald's like oh my gosh you just left Jason Tatum wide open and he rushes over there and then two people are on the ball and Tatum splits it and now it's a three for Sam Hauser in the corner and Hauser ended Mm -hmm. up making as many threes in that game as the Pacers did five and five (laughs) so some of it was like that which I'm sure the Pacers will look at the tape and be like hey this is the overhelping stuff that we don't want you doing we'd like to stay home at the three-point line but for the Celtics, like this is why it's such a curious flip flop because you know they're number one in three point attempt rate, but they're 29th in drives per 100 possessions, and the Pacers are number one at limiting threes, and they give up more drives than any team in the NBA. Mm-hmm. So because of what I just said about the scheme, like they aim to guard the pick and roll two versus two, they really want to stay in single coverage as much as they can, and I think that this is an adjustment that we will likely see because Tatum and Porzingis have been so good in the post this year. The Pacers have kind of realized as the season has gone on since that game happened of like oh. Sometimes we do need to double the post. So I think that they will probably send some help there, especially if it's Tatum and if he gets a mismatch against Tyrese or, you know, if TJ McConnell's playing or against a smaller guard, you'll probably see more double teaming than what we saw in that first matchup. But I am very interested to see if Boston will take advantage of how often the Pacers give up drives and if they'll be more willing to drive it. Because what you said there, like Tatum made a lot of hellacious shots in that game. There were some contested Mm -hmm. ones that he took, and there was one that was particularly bad where the Pacers gave up a cross match in transition where Ben didn't pick up Tatum. And Miles Turner was kind of left to do the job. And then Tatum was like, okay, everybody get out of the way. I'm licking my lips. I'm going to go at Miles Turner. And it ended up being a sidestep three. He kept the three, a three and he made it, but it's like (laughs) miles turned his back to you. And that's a rim protector out on the perimeter. And that could have been a drive. Like that could have been you 
putting the defense in rotation or, or drawing a foul because he has been such a dynamic driver this year and what his points are, especially by comparison to Jalen Brown. So I mean, interested to see how that matchup goes. Like if the, if the Celtics will continue to do what they normally do, which is to really want to play up the variance and get up as many three point attempts as they can, or if they're going to look at this matchup and be like, Hey, this is an opportunity for us to mix up our offensive attack a little bit and maybe get into some secondary drives, which isn't necessarily their thing. Right. Yeah. You know, watching that game again, I remember as I was watching it the first time, I was like, man, like, cause it was still early on in the season. Right. So we hadn't seen the proof of concept with the Celtics as much as we have to this point in the season. And it did seem like there was a lot of abnormally hot shooting, um, you know, a lot of early shots in transition too, like a lot of pull up threes. Derek white was on fire that game. Drew holiday came out um, shooting to Jalen Brown had some nice post-up opportunities, but the one guy I wanted to talk about was drew holiday. Mm-hmm. So, you know, he, Last season, Drew took advantage of the Pacers defense. And it, was it the same scheme last year? Is that why Drew was able to get to that 51 points? Because they were just like allowing him to play in isolation in the post and Drew is such a good post player? Oh, no. This Pacers scheme has has changed dramatically from last year. Okay. So they used to put a lot of bodies in the paint. They would be very exaggerated at the nail and have early help there. They were pretty overzealous with the low man. And that's where they've dialed some of that back because they were still giving up a lot in the paint, despite how many bodies they were putting there because they just don't have that many stout on ball defenders. And then they were also giving up corner threes. I think the approach now is, well, at least we're taking away something and we're hoping that kind of, you know, leaving these guys on islands and really drilling the idea that we want to defend our individual matchups that as the season goes along, we'll get more inflection points and it'll be a slow build and, and we'll get internal development. Now, now, whether that actually happens is remains to be seen. It, it happens in fits and starts so far this year where, you know, maybe Benedict Mathern has a really strong game against the Bucks, and then two games later, he doesn't. But mm-hmm. beside the point, last year against Drew Holiday, he started out pretty hot, but the Pacers ended up having to go to switching in that game. So by the time they got to the fourth quarter, he was really kind of putting in work against Miles Turner, getting to his step back Mm -hmm. um, a lot in that game. But yeah, their their scheme would have been quite a bit different. And I'll be interested to see how they match up and line up for this one when you talk about Drew, because I'm guessing that's going to have to be Buddy Heald that guards him because they don't like to put, this will be a departure from how they use Tyrese Halliburton typically, because Tyrese is a defender normally does not defend at the point of attack. They want to put him on low usage wings and let him Mm. play aerial ace because he tends to get overpowered. So there's not really an option for him to do that, right? Because you don't want to put him on Tatum. You don't want to put him on Jalen Brown. And the physicality with Drew Holiday, I don't think you really want either. So he's probably going to have to defend Derek White. I would guess that Bruce Brown takes Tatum. And if Mm -hmm. they continue to start Obi, I would probably start Aaron. But if they start Obi, he's going to take Brown. So that's going to mean that Buddy's going to get the Drew Holiday matchup, I would suspect. And how does that make you feel? (laughs) A little bit nervous, a little bit nervous. Buddy on the whole, I think, has been better by comparison to himself than he was last year. That being said, he's the type who he can have a possession at the end of the game against the Raptors where he's defending Scotty Barnes and Scotty Barnes is like, Oh, I'm, I'm not going to just walk you into the post. He hands it off to OG on an buddy stays in front of that handoff. OG hands it off to Dennis Schroeder. He even manages to stay in front of Schroeder and knocks the ball off of Schroeder's knee, gets a big stop. And then a few games later, he can be like trying to bump at a Jeremy Grant pump fake and then getting completely blasted on giving up middle and then the coaching staff's pulling him out of the game so it can be a little bit hit or miss on what you're going to get from buddy as a defender but i do think overall he has been better than what i've seen from him in the past but i don't know how he's going to hold up if drew starts getting really physical with him 
Yeah, Drew is such a beast in the post. Um, you know, he used his backside so well. He's so good at getting to that left hand. And because there's so much space, which I'm sure you've seen watching Celtics games, they teams don't really double down on Drew in the post, you know, and he is a willing passer if they do end up doubling down out of the post. So he can still create there. But if you guys are going to go, if the Pacers are going to go with Buddy Heald against Drew Holiday in the post, I would imagine pretty early and often the Celtics will try to take advantage of that. Um, I'm trying to think of of other questions that I had for you, but uh, you've, you know, I've been asking most of the questions. Are there any questions that you have for me? Trying to think if I can think of a good one that we haven't covered. Oh, Al Horford. That's a good one to talk okay. about. So where yeah. are you at on Al Horford's defense? I think it started a little bit slow in some of the games that I've watched, but I think overall, I don't want to make it completely about his age, but I've been fairly impressed, especially by what his isolation numbers are. Mm -hmm. So like just to throw out some numbers for the listeners, I looked this up ahead of time that Tyrese, when he's facing drop is scoring one point or the Pacers are as a team are scoring 1.223 points per 100 possessions on possessions when he sees drop, which is, you know, an otherworldly number against the switch in the pick and roll. That's at 0 0.893. So will the Celtics, do you foresee that if Porzingis can't go and Al Horford's the starter, will they be having him do a lot of switching from the start? Or do you think that they'll try to keep him in drop and see how it goes? I think that they're going to start and drop. Um, I forget which game it was, but recently we were getting torched in the pick and roll. And at the end of the game, they decided to go to Horford up at the level and and then just switching, switching everything. And he, he does a good job. Um, he's really good at staying connected on the hip and blocking shots from behind just with high hands without following. Um, the last game that we played, he did, he did have to come off the court for a few possessions because he was getting toasted in the pick and roll. The one thing that, he's a little bit um susceptible to is a step back three so if he's in isolation i, I would say that's pretty much any big right that's it. it's out in, in on an island with with a, with a guard especially to halliburton's level you mentioned the turner um covering tatum earlier same kind of concept when tatum it took that hard step to his left and then um ended up hitting that three-pointer on turn and turner was completely turned <laughs> like his hips were just completely open that happens to horford a good amount um see the the series against the sixers last year when james harden just cooked him in isolation um so i do think that the the celtics will go to that but they never want to put horford like completely switching everything for a full 48 right so i would imagine that if we go drop i don't know if you saw jared weiss's article that he posted the other day about drew holiday kind of pinching off of um pinching off of the wings and taking mm -hmm. away the snake screen um so i do think that they'll be in drop and that you'll have holiday and white being willing to um, help off the wing shooters and take that snake screen away um, which is a really interesting wrinkle that we've seen so far out of drew one of the big things that uh, Missoula has done is empowered Drew Holiday to kind of quarterback and free safety that defense. And he just, he's a madman out there. He switches everything, um, you know, two switches away that you wouldn't expect the switch to happen. He's there. And then it, it, it seems like at this point in the season, the other guys are starting to expect that help versus before they were like confused by it. And then there would be an open, um, you know, hockey assist open shot on the perimeter but with horford back back to the horford thing i would imagine that they'll start and drop if, if he gets the call and then you know the the backup big i think is even a bigger question in this in this particular matchup right because if porzingis can't go horford starting at at the five cornet almost exclusively plays in drop so the celtics have not gone to one of your old friends o'shea Brissett 
at all, who I want to talk about here in a second. And they have not gone to Lamar Stevens much at all. We've seen a little bit of Nemius Cato recently, but he's also a drop coverage big, so that wouldn't help. So, you know, if we're getting torched and we need to make a switch to a different five and it's not Horford, um, do you think, I'm going to throw it back to you, uh, do you think that Brissett is someone that can, you know, function as a small ball five against the Pacers? Yeah, that's a good question because there were times, especially the Nate Bjorkren season and then the first year that Rick came over, where they would use O'Shea as a five when Sabonis was still on the team because they didn't want to put Sabonis in pick and roll coverages like it was mainly a way to protect him. So they would put O'Shea on the five so that he could switch out. And that would be an option because you bring that up about Horford and being susceptible to the step back. Like that's the number one thing that Tyrese wants to do against a switch versus a big. And sometimes mm-hmm. I don't think the tracking data captures that because he's doing it before the switch happens. He really wants to hunt the switch pocket and he's his range is deeper than ever. So he's going to be pulling from, you know, 30 feet before that screen, before one defender hands them off to the next is where he's mm-hmm. gotten really good at attacking that. So you might be a little bit more watertight with O'Shea in those situations where he can probably play closer than what you would be getting from Horford. The one thing that always stood out to me, and I haven't seen many of O'Shea's minutes with the Celtics this year, but his core strength. So depending upon who's out there at the five for the Pacers, it might be okay, but he's never been the stoutest at defending the post. Like he, you can move him pretty easily. So if they decided mm-hmm. like, Hey, we're not getting anything against the switch because of what I had brought up earlier about Portland, whenever they had Brogdon guarding miles and they weren't getting any downhill momentum out of that. If they did want to go to miles against O'Shea, I think the Pacers would probably feel pretty good about that matchup and going to the inside against it. Now they don't have, I, I don't know that Jalen Smith will most likely be available. Isaiah Jackson really isn't in a post threat. And if they have to go really small, you're obviously not going to be worried about the post-ups from Obi and, and Aaron Neesmith. So it could be a, it could be a case where both teams are playing centerless at a certain point in time. I think that you might be able to get to those types of iterations depending upon how things go. Right. And w- overall, why do you think O'Shea, you, you mentioned his minutes, there haven't been many, so like you haven't missed much, but why do you think he hasn't fit in Boston thus far? How's this finishing look? Let me throw the ball back to you. Yeah, I don't. (laughs) There was a point in time where I thought in the first season that like he was so strong when they brought him out of the Mad Ants. And that was like a rare, rare brief spot at the end of that Bjorkren year that kind of gave people something to hang on to and watch because he was just shooting the three at another worldly level. And he is a very intuitive and timely cutter. Mm -hmm. But then as the time went on, he wasn't really finishing on the cuts all that well. And it felt like everything that he did as a driver was like a hanging bank shot or him taking off way too far and then not getting any elevation off of one foot. So (laughs) until if the finishing doesn't come around, then he's completely dependent on the three. And I don't know that he's a good enough shooter to be somebody that has to be completely dependent on the three. So, yeah, I don't have his numbers in front of me in terms of how he's been shooting, but just like complete eye test. It doesn't seem like he's hit many threes. I would imagine he's hit less than five threes this year. Um, we, We can look that up afterwards, but he hasn't shot the ball well. Um, that's why Adam is so low on Brissett. I don't know if it's because yeah. that was something that you wrote about a lot, but coming into the season, he was like, no, I'm out on O'Shea Brissett. He doesn't finish at the rim. Um, so we were kind of looking for that to see if that would you know, kind of hold true this year, and it absolutely has held true. But I do like him in certain matchups. He had 
he actually held up really well in the first, I think it was the first heat matchup that the Celtics played against. They switched, they had him at the small ball five. He switched on to Bam a couple times. And I remember his length gave Bam some problems. He held up well in a switch against Jimmy Butler. So with O'Shea, you know, beyond just the the game against the Pacers, the in-season tournament game, moving forward, I'm kind of thinking to myself, is this a guy who is just going to be used in very specific matchups in the playoffs? Like, is Joe just going to have him? Missoula's talked a lot about curveballs. Does he look at Brissett as just another curveball? Because the guy that's actually started to win minutes at the at the um, wing position is Banton. So the, the kid from Toronto. Banton's actually done a really good job lately um, because of his background as a point guard. He's, yeah, that's he's, what I was going to say. Yeah, he's he's done really well just reading the floor. He actually plays well out of the dunker spot as well. Um, and he's he's been good in the short roll. So um Banton's actually won those minutes over Brissett. But yeah, is there anything else on Brissett that you want to talk about? Yeah, I mean, I think the best thing about him is there are certain games where he can come in and make a contribution just with his ferocity in a very brief spurt of minutes because he mm-hmm. is he's going to attack the offensive glass like none other. Like he is going to keep possessions alive. He can make cuts like he's a pretty good Maggetti cutter out of the corners. Like if you draw mm-hmm. a tag, he can circle out around those. But like. I don't, there came a time where I was like, yeah, this, this partnership probably needs to be done. And part of that was because the Pacers were getting minutes at the four from Aaron Neesmith and that role was just not going to be there for O'Shea anymore. But it is a, it is a tough thing with him and finding the right opportunities for him to go out there. And I think that there probably was some Celtics fans that were hoping he was going to replicate some of what Grant Williams was able to do because, you know, Grant was a guy that you could put out there on centers and have him switch out to the ball and was hitting the corner three at a decent enough rate that you felt good about having him out on the floor. And I I don't think O'Shea necessarily provides a a great facsimile for that necessarily yeah no and uh, lamar stevens is the other guy right that we were hoping could come in and do some of the grant grant williams stuff but grant you know i'm starting to see early on it was it was all glowing returns out of dallas but i've started to see more and more tweets coming out about how grant williams isn't quite living up to uh what dallas mavericks fans were were hoping um, and you know, I, I haven't tuned into a Mavs game in a while, so I'm not sure why, but I would imagine it's because the shot's not falling and that he's not as switchable as that they were hoping. That's kind of, that was kind of why he fell out of favor in, in Boston last year is that the, the shot was kind of hit or miss. And then he, there were some matchups we thought Grant Williams would be able to handle out in the perimeter. He actually couldn't. Um, but you know, another guy you, you mentioned earlier, um, Smith, Jalen Smith, right? Mm-hmm. You said that he's probably not going to play, but Jackson, Isaiah Jackson, somebody that I'm really interested in. I, I don't know too much about him, but every time I watch a Pacers play, he kind of jumps off the screen at me. Um, it seems like he, he holds up well, switches onto, onto bigger wings and athletic wings. What, like, what am I, what, what kind of player am I supposed to be watching when I'm watching Isaiah Jackson? Where does he fit in, in the league? Part of Isaiah's problem is that during preseason, he didn't have the best showing for himself at the same time as Jalen really popped off. And mm-hmm. to a certain degree, this is kind of detrimental for the Pacers because Jalen has a player option and he's, there was a point in time where he was leading the league in effective field goal percentage and three-point percentage, albeit on very low volume. But when he's playing like that and he gives you more offensive versatility at that point than what you're going to get from Isaiah as a non-shooter, it makes sense for the Pacers to be playing him, but it also means he might outprice his market given that he has a player option. Then the Pacers already picked up the option on Isaiah Jackson's rookie contract, which means he is guaranteed to be here next year, but isn't fully in the rotation and he's playing behind Jalen. So there are certain matchups like what I just talked about with Atlanta where they were trying to play Turner at different levels against Trey Young and Trey was getting around the edge on blitzes. 
Miles was too deep, even in drop a couple times against DeJounte Murray, where they just felt better about, hey, let's just try to have court trap Trey. And Isaiah really shines with his ability to cover ground. And, and especially if you are if you do need to go to blitzing, he's probably the best option because he can actually force negative dribbles and still get back in front of the screener without needing to peel those types of things. And I think he's gotten a little bit better, like what you mentioned there with the switches, because last year he would have a really bad tendency of like standing up. Like he's very good at shuffling his feet, but he would go out to the perimeter and stand up and then people would get past him despite how well he's capable of moving. So I think it's a little bit iffy with him still, depending upon what is out there. Cause like I said, there, it was an upset. Obi Toppin ended up playing at the five instead of him, despite the fact that Jalen wasn't available and miles was having his best game. But something that I'm also curious about at the center position, because it's something that I think about a lot with Jalen and miles, because they are people who have shot the three miles. three point percentage has actually regressed here lately, but they both started out pretty hot. Have you noticed any teams against Kristaps Porzingis? Cause he hasn't shot the three super well this year either. Although he does play deeper, are there teams where they're just like, this is what we're willing to concede? Or do you still notice a lot of gravity for him? Still, still a lot of gravity. You know, he, he was really struggling um, before he got hurt shooting the ball from distance. And that was the one thing that we talked about a lot on the pod is that with Horford, even though Horford will hit a high clip of threes in nut crunch time, he doesn't really have that gravity. And it seems like this year, Porzingis is still maintaining that gravity over time. It'll be interesting to see if those numbers don't come back up. Um, you know, Porzingis really struggles because they're all walking wide open threes too. Mm -hmm. You know, that's the thing that's like, how are you shooting so poorly on these wide open three point shots? Um, but teams are still hugging up a little bit more um, to the perimeter and they're try still trying to run him off. That's one thing that I was, I've been impressed with Porzingis is when they do run him off the three point line, he is a little bit more nimble than I was expecting. And he's also um, just able to play make a little bit more than I think most fans were expecting there. But that, that, that's a great question. And I think with Horford, you know, his ability since he's since Porzingis has been out, he's been shooting the three really well. But you saw in the playoffs last year that he's not like he wasn't bred to be a shooter. You know, the Al, Al, that's not what he makes his money on. So um, I think that's that's just one of the those things to watch throughout the season is can Porzingis maintain that gravity? That's a great question. And look who we have here pulling back in Adam Taylor. I don't know, Adam, I'm going to bring you back in here on, onto the, onto the broadcast here. End of the episode, man. It took me <laughs> so long to fix that. It was a configuration issue. No, talk no about um, having to get thrown into the fire and uh, overcome imposter syndrome. I had to go one-on-one -on -one with Caitlin Cooper for 40, 40 minutes talking X's and O's. And I was like, you know what? You know who would be really good to answer this question? It would be our X's and O's guy, Adam Taylor. But I, I, I did my best. Adam, we were just talking. Um, Caitlin just asked about Porzingis' three-point shot um, and whether or not he's still been able to maintain that gravity. So... I was just wondering your perspective, you know, do you think Porzingis is still going to be able to uh, maintain the gravity that's going to make that pick and pop so dangerous? I think he froze. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay. That's all good. I was, I was like, oh, he's really being stoic right now. Like, yeah, he's really listening to me. Um, okay. Well, Caitlin, we've taken up 45 minutes of your time. I do want to get you out on one last thing. 
So you're so good at breaking down film. I think that's why so many people are drawn to drawn to your work is that you really pay attention to the nitty gritty details of the game. So for Celtics fans that are listening to this, I want you to give me one kind of wrinkle or idiosyncrasy um, in the Pacers offense or defense that you think is kind of just a fun thing to look for whenever you see the Pacers play. I think a play that they go to a lot that maybe people can watch for that you'll see Tyrese call. And I'm guessing they'll probably go to it in this matchup is when he's coming up the floor, he'll hold up a C and that means that they're going to get a touch screen out of the corner from the guard. If they get a switch there or something shakes loose, sometimes the guard will slip to the rim. especially if that's Bruce Brown, who's pretty good at slipping into space, they might get something there. But the real reason they're doing that is just to evaluate the defense. And then they flip it to that big, who's going to be the trailer at the top of the key. And then they go into Chicago action, which is just a pin down into a handoff. And a lot of times that'll be Benedict Mathern out of the left corner, getting downhill and that's probably one of the plays that they run the most along with just their wide reject Spain, which is just going to be buddy healed as a stack screener with Tyrese manipulating what they get out of that. So I think what's most interesting about the Pacers is Rick Carlisle has this reputation about being a play caller and he's certainly capable. He's still fire with the pin. I like watching their opening sets a lot or out of an ATO. They have some specials that'll be more nuanced, but given that they have a younger roster and they have an artist to paint with who is Tyrese Halliburton, a lot of times their initial actions are fairly simple. And then the challenge for them is, can they keep playing? Like if they get taken out of that, they practice like I've seen them do this at practices where they're five on nothing and just seeing how random can we get and can we get to the next play? Because this isn't a team that isolates a lot. So you can look for some of their initial plays. And I think the most part is can they do um, play breakdown progressions and continue to keep playing? And also maybe just one other little nitty Tyrese thing because he has Go as long as you want. <laughs> so fantastic to start the season is after a make which I'm sure there will be plenty of makes by the Boston Celtics tomorrow is watch Tyrese take a peek over his shoulder. So that's in part why the Pacers are the second fastest time to shoot after a made shot is because he doesn't waste any time. He's already surveying the court. He does not stare down the inbound passer. He looks ahead down the court to see where is buddy healed? Where are my hit ahead pass opportunities? What type of coverage is that team in? And then he gets the ball to go. So I don't know how seriously people take me when I say to do this, but I really do think it's an advantage that the Pacers get with him out there because he just doesn't waste any time ever. They don't just play fast and transition. They also play fast in the half court at how quickly they get into their offense. So All right. always something new and interesting and cerebral to watch for from Tyrese Halliburton, assuming he's healthy, fingers crossed. I, I, think, I think that they <laughs> sat him out so that he'd be ready and fresh for this game. That's that's my assumption. It's my hope that that Porzingis and Halliburton are both ready to go because I do think that the, there's some low hanging fruit that the Pacers can clean up. I do think the fact that the Pacers shot, you know, 18%, I think on uncontested threes and the Celtics shot 50 50% on contested threes, I think some of that will even out a little bit. So, I think this has the potential to be a really fun game. For sure. Yeah, and the question will be is Tyrese Halliburton worth 50 whole points? Because that's how much the Celtics beat the Pacers by in the first matchup. Well, Caitlin Cooper, I almost did it. Caitlin Cooper, thank you so much for being here today. We went one-on-one -on -one for 47 minutes. I'm sweating like a pig oh, no. over here. Uh, it was unbelievable getting a chance to speak with you. Um, this is Greg Manakis signing off. Green with Envy, my band down here, Black Sheep Optimist from Austin, Texas. This one is called Get This High. Thank you, Caitlin. Peace, everybody. 
Spring is in the air at Littleton Coin Company, and we want to help you brighten your collection. Visit us at littletoncoin.com all month long to enjoy 15% off your purchase. With a wide selection of coins, paper money, supplies, and more, Littleton Coin Company has something for every collector's taste. Use promo code SPRING at littletoncoin.com for 15% off your purchase all month long. Restrictions apply. Littleton Coin Company. Serving collectors since 1945.